Good morning. I woke up yesterday in the desert, and I woke up today in a winter wonderland. It's like two different worlds. It's also six o'clock in the morning, my time in Phoenix, so I've had my coffee, and we're good to go. I'm so excited to be with you this morning. What an amazing gift to be gathered together, sisters in the spirit, well over 2,000 of you, here to worship and pray and learn and fall more and more in love with our Eucharistic Lord. It's a miracle that each one of you is here today. And I personally know what a logistical circus it can be just to get out of the house, much less spend an entire day together. It's a miracle. And it's another miracle looking at this room with the eyes of faith to know that there are far more than two or even 3,000 of us in this room right now. Just take a minute and remember and recall that there's thousands of angels here. Your patron saints are here. The patron saints of this diocese, of your parishes, of your families, they're gathered with us today. That's a miracle. One of the greatest gifts of being Catholic is the communion of saints. And days like today are reminders to all of us that we are not alone, that we are never alone. Because we have an enemy whose primary tactic is to get us to think we're alone. There's an orphan spirit that whispers in our ear and says, it's all up to you. Nobody's coming. Each man for himself. And nothing could be further from the truth. And so the Lord in his goodness and his mercy and his generosity gathers us together to remind us that we are one body. And we're never alone. So we have the communion of saints, and some of these saints are well-known. Everybody knows. Padre Pio, here today with us. St. Therese, the little flower, comes to mind. How many of you have a devotion or at least know about St. Therese of Lisieux? Almost every hand's going up, right? St. Therese predicted that everybody was going to know about her. She likes to be seen. She said when she died, she was going to come back from heaven and spend her heaven on earth. It's like roses for everybody, right? Everybody knows about St. Therese. Everybody loves her. She was true to her word. She came back, and we all know about her. Sometimes it takes a saint a hundred years of being hidden with Christ in God before the church says, okay, it's time for you to come out and introduce yourself and tell everybody who's been praying for them all this time. Who here has a devotion to or knows about St. Elizabeth of the Trinity? Okay, more than usual. Usually there's like two shy hands going up in the back. Even in rooms full of religious women, I found that St. Elizabeth is a hidden gem of the church. When Pope John Paul II beatified her and declared her a blessed in 1984, he presented her to the church as somebody who had lived a life hidden with Christ in God 
And that was her preference. And she predicted before she died that she would be hidden. And she was true to her word too. One of my friends likes to say that the Holy Spirit likes to hide things for us to find. The Holy Spirit likes to hide things for us to find. It's time for Elizabeth to be found, and I believe that there is a very good reason for that. She's a Carmelite. She was a cloistered Carmelite, turn of the century France, but she's for us today. I was giving a talk in Phoenix a couple years ago, and I was with the speakers in the green room in the back, and there was a married woman who was another speaker, and then there were two Carmelite sisters of the Sacred Heart from Alhambra in California there with us also speaking. And the subject of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity came up because of my book, and the other um, married woman speaker had never heard of her. And the Carmelite sister, one of the Carmelite sisters said, you've never heard of Elizabeth of the Trinity? She said, she was one of us, pointing to herself and her fellow sister in their full Carmelite habits. She said, she was one of us, but she is for you. She is for the woman in the world today who desires greater intimacy with the Lord, who knows that there's something more, but is so overwhelmed by the anxieties of her life that she doesn't know how to find it. Elizabeth is for the woman in the world today who wants to pray, who knows how important it is, but who feels so clumsy when she tries to do it, or she just can't find the time. Or when she goes to pray, all she can think about are the anxieties and the worries weighing on her. She's for the woman in the world today consumed by busyness, paralyzed by the sheer weight of the responsibilities of her life, overwhelmed by the violence of the noise in the world today, who wants to find the interior silence that she's been invited to but doesn't know how to do it. Elizabeth is for her. Elizabeth is for you. And I believe that one of the reasons you're here today is to either become her friend or become better friends with her. Something's happening in the church today. I believe there's this movement in the Holy Spirit toward greater intimacy, a life lived in union with Christ. It seems paradoxical because life has never been more busy more cluttered, noisier, more distracting. And yet, even in the midst of that, maybe especially because of that, the Lord is saying, even still, I am calling you to deeper intimacy, greater interior silence, recollection. And Elizabeth is part of that, and that's why she was hidden until now, because she's part of what's happening in the church today. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about, um, I'm going to give you just a brief introduction to her life. And then we're going to talk about these things, about why she's a saint uh, for the lady today and some of the things that she has to say. But first of all, let's begin. Who was St. Elizabeth of the Trinity? Well, she was born in 1880. Her name was Elizabeth Cates. Her father was a military man. Um, this is her with her little sister, Geet, 
Marguerite. Marguerite has her head on Elizabeth's shoulder, so Elizabeth's the older sister. They were a very devout, close-knit family, but her father died when she was seven years old. And so her mother was a young widow with two young girls. At the time, you know, you just had to take what life gave you, so they were very reduced in their circumstances, and they had to move to a small apartment in Dijon. So her mom picked up her daughters, left the only life they'd known, and they moved to this small home in Dijon, France. Now, I want you to imagine with me Little Elizabeth, seven years old, walking into her home, her new home for the first time. And she goes upstairs to her second floor bedroom. She walks across the room for the first time and she looks out the window. And what she sees outside of her window is a garden, a yard. And it's an enclosed space that nobody in the world has access to or can see except the cloistered Carmelite nuns who live just around the corner. So Elizabeth has this bird's eye view into this sacred hidden garden. And that was going to have a profound effect on her life and on the life of the church. But... God had some work to do with our little friend first. This is Elizabeth at about a year and a half old. Look at those eyes. Look at that face. This was a strong-willed child. We don't know any like that, right? She had a personality to match that expression. There's a story that I tell in my book on Elizabeth's life about this doll that she's holding and the tantrum that she throws in church over this doll. I won't go into the story now, but needless to say, if you've ever carried a screaming child out of church, you'll understand what Elizabeth's mom had to go through. They kept, her sister would say later after Elizabeth died, her sister told the story that her mother would actually keep a bag of Elizabeth's belongings by the front door of their home and would threaten Elizabeth with it and say, if you don't shape up, are you ready? We're going to take this bag. We're going to go to the home for trouble girls down the street, and I'm going to leave you there. Because she would throw tantrums. She would lock the door of her room if she didn't get her way, beat her fists, scream and cry. She was a choleric, if you know anything about personalities. But Elizabeth would actually channel that strength of will and that strong personality. And with the grace of the sacraments of her first confession and her holy communion, she would overcome the worst of her personality traits and she would transform that temperament. Never underestimate the grace of the sacraments. Elizabeth experienced that firsthand. I think I need another clicker. Oh, no, I'm sorry. wasn't advancing on my screen. Okay, so here's Elizabeth as a young woman, and you'll notice her eyes still intense, but totally transformed. Somebody said to Elizabeth once, you know, when I look at you, I can tell you see God. So she was, had become this beautiful young woman, totally in love with, with Jesus Christ, and the presence of that convent around the corner was having its effect on her. And she discerned by the time she was 15 a call to the convent and to the Carmelite um, order. Now, if you know about St. Therese of Lisieux, you know that she also discerned a call to the Carmelite life when she was 15. 
and she asked her father to enter early. If you know the story, her father said yes and actually took her to Rome to petition the Holy Father so that they could make an exception and let Therese into the convent early. That is not what happened when Elizabeth asked her mother for permission. Her mother said no, and not only no, but you are cut off from all contact with that convent from now on. No more daily mass, no more visits with the sisters. I, don't, I want you to forget about this call that you have, that you say you have. Her mother had plans for her daughter, and none of them had to do with being a cloistered religious. She wanted her to marry. She wanted her to marry well, and so she kept her in society. She had her, she was, Elizabeth was an accomplished pianist, so she had her doing piano recitals, parties, traveling, all the things. And Elizabeth surrendered to her mother's desires. First of all, what else could she do? The Carmelites wouldn't have accepted her without her mother's permission. And she loved her mother. She wanted to make her happy. So she surrendered those desires over to the Lord. But her heart was broken. It was a severe suffering. It was her first experience of a dark night. But eventually her perspective would shift, and this was going to become really, really important. When she was 18 years old, she wrote a poem for the Feast of Pentecost. And in that poem, she said, You give me my vocation. Oh, lead me then to this intimate interior union, to this life holy in God, which is my desire. May my hope be in Jesus alone, and while living in the midst of the world, may I long for, may I see only him, my love, my divine friend. So what we notice is she's talking about her vocation, but she says it's intimate interior union. So she's moved from seeing her vocation as to being a Carmelite or a religious woman to having intimacy with God, which is the vocation of every single one of us. She's realized at a young age of 18 that our states in life are not ends in themselves, but they are means to the end of our ultimate Christian vocation, which is intimacy and union with God. If you are married, you are married for the sake of intimacy with God. If you are a religious woman, you are a religious woman for the sake of your ultimate vocation, intimacy with God. Single, ordained. We all, in the end, have the same vocation, and that is holiness. There's different paths, but there's the same end. Now, the church would teach this very clearly later, decades later, in Vatican II, this is a quote from a document from Vatican II called Lumen Gentium. All the faithful of Christ, whatever rank or status, are called to the fullness of the Christian life and the perfection of charity. The classes and duties of life are many, but holiness is one. Now, that language might not seem so jarring to us. That might not surprise us. Yeah, we're all called to holiness. But let me tell you something. In turn-of-the-century France, at Elizabeth's time, that was not exactly what you were used to hearing from the pulpit. 
It was a culture very much of fire and brimstone and not the universal call to holiness. So Elizabeth very much had a prophetic voice. And so Elizabeth, I'm going to back up here again. Elizabeth says she asks for the union that she longs for, that she knows is her vocation while living in the midst of the world. And what she was learning is that you can live this life of recollection and you can live this life of intimacy and you can be close to God, whatever you're doing, and whether or not she would ever become a nun. Because what she was learning to desire was not her vocation, even though she believed God had given it to her, but she was learning to desire his will as it was manifested through the circumstances of her life and her mother. And the Lord was not teaching Elizabeth these things just for her sake. He was teaching her these things for our sakes today as well. Which is exactly why my Carmelite friend said, she is for you. And I believe that the Lord allowed those years for Elizabeth to live in the midst of the world for the sake of us today because those would be the, the, her experiences in the world would be the basis for the letters that she would later write, write from the convent. And primarily who she was writing to from the convent were, guess what, women in the world. Moms, wives, widows. One of the stories that I tell in my book, it's always astonishing to me that this resonates more than any other chapter in my book with women. I tell the story of a particular Sunday when my children were all much younger and I just had a desire to go to the adoration chapel at the church down the street. I just wanted 15 minutes. I didn't even want a whole hour. Just 15 minutes. And I talked to my husband. I'm like, do you think we can make this work? No problem. But that particular Sunday, it just, there were too many fires. The kids needed me. I just had to be home. I, I couldn't get away, and that's okay. Sometimes we push through, and sometimes we discern that we just need to be what I call obedient to the moment. And in that moment, I was just called to be home. But later that night, I was on the floor of my kitchen, on my knees in the dark, cleaning up spilled Cheerios. And there I was on the dirty kitchen floor by myself in the kitchen. And I had one of the most profound experiences of God's presence in my entire life. And, and it was palpable and his presence just flooded into that room and flooded into my heart. And I heard these words in my heart. You couldn't come to me, so I've come to you. I just sat there on the kitchen floor with the Lord in union with him. Imagine how I felt years later while I was reading the letters of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. One letter in particular she had written to her sister, her little sister, who at the time was a mom who had just had her second daughter. And she wrote this letter on Easter. And she was talking about Holy Thursday when her sister, who was about to have a baby, could not go to the holy hour after Mass on Holy Thursday before they reposed the Blessed Sacrament for the Triduum. And her sister was brokenhearted, but Elizabeth said this to her. 
Since you could not go to him, I told him to come to you. And I just love that confidence and that simplicity. Because the point is that God's will is, that God is where his will is in the moment. That's where he's going to meet you, where he's calling you, where the duties of your life have you. Not in the convent or some cave, retreat center, an adoration chapel. We all need those places and we all long for them for good reason. But if he's calling you to the kitchen, he's waiting right by the sink. Or the laundry room or the classroom or the carpool line or your office. Wherever he is calling you to the moment, that's where he is. That's where we'll encounter him. And we cannot go outside of his will and expect to find him there. So Elizabeth was learning that lesson. And after she had embraced and learned that lesson, her mother relented. Elizabeth attributed it to uh, the intercession of our blessed mother. Her mother relented. Um, it was all in Mary's timing, our lady of good timing, I call it. I just made that up, but I like that, don't you? Our Lady of Good Timing. So she was allowed to enter at the age of 21, and she was given the name St. Marie Elizabeth of the Trinity, which would be another prophetic uh, moment for her when she was given that name. She lived a very holy life. We have many letters that she wrote from the convent, and we can tell from her letters the deep intimacy that she knew with the Lord um, she corresponded with about 40 laity out in the world while she was a religious sister. Um, and that would become very important to us. New Year's Day, 1906, the nuns had a tradition of drawing a saint to be their patron saint for the year. This is nothing new for us. They didn't have a generator to give them a name, but they would draw a name out of a hat. And that would be their patron saint for the year. 1906, New Year's Day, Elizabeth pulls out Saint Joseph. And some of the nuns overhear her say, well, that's appropriate. St. Joseph is the patron of many, many things in our church. One of those things is a happy death. Elizabeth had already at that time begun to experience the symptoms of the disease that would take her life 10 months later. And she would die after suffering for 10 months from Addison's disease, which is a disease of the adrenal glands, which takes away your ability to process food and drink. So over the next 10 months, she would slowly starve to death. And she died on November 9th, 1906. That's the Cliff Notes version of her life. This Present Paradise is the name of my book on her life, and I invite you to, um, to read it if you want to know more. The reason I named my book This Present Paradise actually refers to a pillar of Elizabeth's spirituality. Let's talk about that for a minute. And what it, what, it, what it refers to is this reality that by virtue of your baptism, your heart becomes a home for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Since the day you were baptized, you have become a temple of the Holy Trinity. Which means that if your ultimate vocation is union with God and the God of the universe is dwelling within you, then guess what? Your eternity has already begun. You are living with one foot in heaven. 
Elizabeth famously said, we have our heaven within us, let's live it. Let's live, it, live as if it's real, that what we have been created for, we have already begun to experience. That heaven is only a consummation of what, we've, what has already commenced, what's already begun. Now, that doesn't mean it's always easy, right? Because this side of heaven, it doesn't always feel like a paradise, tropical paradise. The woman I was sitting next to on the plane over here to Columbus had just gotten back from Hawaii, and she was very eager to share with me all of her pictures of the beaches and the palm trees and all the food she'd eaten. Like, why do we take pictures of our food? But she was showing me her food. And I enjoyed it. I've never been to Hawaii. I've never been to a tropical paradise. Phoenix, Arizona has palm trees, but there are no beaches in Phoenix. Um, and I have spent zero hours on a beach drinking out of a coconut, you know? So when I say paradise, I'm not talking about some island paradise. I'm talking about heaven. But this side of paradise is not without suffering. In fact, it's within the suffering, this is one of the paradoxes of our faith that we're famous for, but it's in the suffering that we experience the most intimate and powerful moments of union with God. And that suffering is for the sake of getting this interior house ready for him and more of him, getting us ready to receive him and receive in a more and more intimate way. When Elizabeth was young, the Carmelite nuns in the convent told her that her name Elizabeth meant house of God. And she loved that. House of God. She would spend hours reflecting on the reality that she was a living house. She loved meditating on the reality of the Trinity dwelling within her. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you don't understand what he's doing. I'm sorry, you do understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks on the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Now, God never disturbs our interior house unless it's to make more room for himself. During COVID, my daughter, who was a teenager at the time, we didn't have much to do, we weren't going anywhere, so she was binge-watching the series Fixer Upper. Any of you love the series Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines? Raise your hand if you've seen the show. Okay. If you haven't seen it, let me give you like the premise of the show. So Chip and Joanna Gaines, a Christian couple, very talented at renovating Fixer Uppers. 
And um, during the course of each episode, they take a couple or an individual who's in the market for a new home around to visit three fixer-upper homes in different neighborhoods in Texas where they live. And they take them around and they show them these homes that are very dated and kind of falling down in some cases. And they say, okay, I know it doesn't look like much now, but just bear with us. Envision for a moment what this could look like. If we threw out, if we added on or we opened up this space, knocked down this wall, let in some natural light, new paint, new floors. Imagine what this home could be like if we got it back to its original glory. Trust us. And they help them imagine the glory of this place, which isn't always easy because you've seen the show. This is an actual, this is an actual house from the show. Like some of these houses are pretty bad. Imagine somebody taking you to this house, the top picture, and saying, how about we buy this one? <laughs> so the, the homeowners choose the house, and then Chip and Joanna go to work, and they do their thing. And the place is made new. Now, here's a thing that's interesting. They never tear down the original house. They might knock some things down, but they never tear it down. Remember, God similarly does not say, I make all new things. God says, I make all things new. God does not erase or destroy what has come before in our interior lives or elsewhere. Instead, he resurrects and he restores what is already there. But he does have to do some work first. There is a day on Fixer Upper, every episode that Chip loves. Who knows what day that is? Demo day. There are some sledgehammers swinging in demo day. They're kicking down walls. Dust is flying everywhere. Dismantling what has been there for decades. Now, I'm not saying God loves Demo Day, but God allows Demo Day in our interior life, in our sacred interior spaces, in order to make a reality the vision of what God knows that our inner world could be. He has to make space for himself, and so he has to dismantle some lies. He has to tear down those walls that we have very carefully, brick by brick, constructed to pr protect ourselves. But it hurts. It hurts. God not only has to dismantle some things in our interior life, he also has to add on to our houses. Because we have limitations we put on ourselves that he never intended for us to have. That's what C.S. Lewis meant when he's throwing out a wing or he's adding an extra floor. Do you know why God has to make more room for himself? Because in the Father's house, there are many, what? Many rooms. When we talk about the Father's house having many rooms, we think about one aspect of that, which is a reality, and that's heaven. There's room for all of us. But if the Father's house, dwell is, his dwelling place is within us, then that means there are many rooms and our soul and our heart becomes a spacious place for others 
but also for all of us. There are a lot of parts of us that we may not have welcomed home yet. There are pieces of us out there, buried, doing our best to forget about them. We wish everybody would. We think God might have. Those are the wounded parts of us, the angry parts of us, the disappointed parts of us, the very inconvenient parts of us. But God desires us to be whole, integrated women with all of us at home with ourselves. And that's the work of our lives. Because we're not just to be recollected in our prayer life, we're to be recollected in our very person. We have to go, part of the work of our lives is to gather up and collect the parts of us that need to be loved and healed and brought home. That sounds good, but how do we do that? What if I told you we don't do that? We all know Jesus as the good shepherd, I'm assuming. It's a familiar story, image of our Lord. We've all experienced him as a good shepherd going out after us when we most needed him. You all have your stories. I love hearing stories. We're sharing stories with, with some of our speakers last night. You're here today because at some point in your life, the shepherd found you and brought you home. But his job isn't done yet. He's not done with you. There are parts of you that got left behind. I want you to indulge me for just a minute, close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to imagine the good shepherd going to the ends of your interior pastures, your inner world, the parts of you that are not home yet. He hears somebody crying in the corner of your heart. And he wants to get to that buried girl. He wants to get to her under the rubble of the disappointments of her life. The life did not turn out the way you thought it would. There's a part of you still hoping for that. He wants to get to the girl that's full of shame, that's hiding. He wants to get to the parts of us that at some point in our life begged us to leave them behind because they were way too heavy to carry. And for our survival, we left them in order to go on and survive. And we had to do that at the time. But there comes a time when the Lord says, all right, we got to go back after her now. It's time for her to come home too. The parts of you that have been buried by time and barricaded by, by walls, he's going after them. And he wants to go after them today. Because when God prepares a place for her, himself, he wants all of you there. So he's making room not just for himself. He's making room for you in your own interior life. Listen to this from Thessalonians. May the God of peace make you perfect in holiness. May he preserve you whole and entire, soul 
spirit, soul, and body irreproachable at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He will do it. Okay, open your eyes. One final point that I want to offer you to meditate on today in prayer, especially with the Blessed Sacrament, this day devoted to growing in intimacy with our Eucharistic Lord. I want you to give the Lord permission to love you back into wholeness. Elizabeth of the Trinity while she was actively dying, you know, she had a long, slow death, suffering tremendously, wrote a letter to her friend and her spiritual mother, Mother Germaine, the superior of the convent. The letter is now considered one of her major works, and it's been given a name, and it's called Let Yourself Be Loved. Elizabeth left the letter because she likes to hide things, including herself. She left the letter hidden for Mother Germaine to find after she had died. So they found the letter among her things after she had died. Mother Germaine would keep this letter until she died. We wouldn't know about it until decades later when we would find among Mother Germaine's belongings a letter that had been read many times. And Elizabeth says in this letter to Mother Germaine, and I would say she's extending this message to all of us today. She says, God loves and we are the beloved. And she says to Mother Germaine, this is your primary vocation, to be loved by God. And she repeats these words six times in this letter. Let yourself be loved. Let yourself be loved. Let yourself be loved. And St. Therese would say it too. My vocation is love. Now, this is not the way we typically look at our purpose or our vocations. I was raised on the Baltimore Catechism. My father was determined that I was going to learn my catechism. So it was drilled into me. And if you know the Baltimore Catechism, one of these fundamental questions is, why did God make you? And if you got the answer right, you said, God made me to know, love, and serve him in this life and be happy with him forever in the next. God made me to know, to love, and serve him. But before that, because we cannot give what we do not have, God made me to be loved by him, to receive his love. So I would say that our primary vocation before anything else is to be loved by God. That is the call on your life. That is the starting point and the ending point of the entire spiritual life. So in that sense, our primary vocation is to be loved by God, which I hope is radically freeing and liberating and consoling because if you have let God love you, then you have done the most important and fundamental work of your life. But that's not easy, right? Because we build walls and we say, okay, that's enough, God, good, I'm good, enough love. 
shame and fear and the awareness of our own limitations keep us from being fully receptive to what God has for us. We are fallen women and we're afraid of what would happen if we let him in that much. But Elizabeth wants that for you so badly. And she wants it for you so badly that she wants to get out of the way so that you can see only Jesus. It's like, it's not about me. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. He's the one who longs for intimacy with you. He longs for you in the place where he dwells within you. When Elizabeth was dying, the Carmelite sisters in the convent asked her if she was going to be like St. Therese. So when Elizabeth died in 1906, St. Therese had not died many years before that. But because Elizabeth was a Carmelite in France, they were the first to know the story of a soul and to have a devotion to St. Therese. So already by 1906, again, Therese is like, I'm coming back. You're all going to know me. The nuns knew her, and they asked Elizabeth, are you going to be like Therese? When you die, are you going to come back? And she said, no. Nope. I'm going to bury myself straight into the bosom of the Trinity. Bye. (laughs) I've loved the Lord my whole life. I can't wait to bury myself. Those are her words, bury myself. But she did say something else. She said, if God allowed, she would, quote, draw souls by helping them go out of themselves and cling to God by a holy, simple, and loving movement and to keep them in this great silence within that will allow God to communicate himself to them and transform them into himself. In other words, she was going to help us, yes. She wasn't going to forget about us, but she's going to help us in an entirely hidden way. Elizabeth does not bring showers of roses. She slips in, and she brings us into the heart of the Father. And when we realize that we're there and that he's here, we realize that she's been there for us. A priest friend of mine said once, and I've heard it many times actually, you know, the saints find us. We don't, we think we choose them. But they've been praying and interceding for us long before we discover them. You are here today in part because Elizabeth has been interceding for you. She wants your interior life to become a place of union with God. She invites you into that union. She is inviting the church into that union. I believe there's a reason why Elizabeth wasn't canonized until 2016. Even though now in the church the process of canonization is speeding up faster than it's ever been, So many saints that we literally lived with on this earth are now canonized already. But it took 100 years for Elizabeth to be canonized. But I think there's a reason for that, a very, very good reason for that. The church is always inspired by the Holy Spirit. Our Lady of Good Timing, right? It's this thing. Right now, I have realized, and many others in the church have realized that there is a call in the hearts of the faithful to a deeper intimacy with God than they have ever been invited into before. And this call to interior silence and intimacy and a deeper prayer life and a longing to love 
that's something happening. I think that's the next movement of the Holy Spirit in the church. And I think you know what I'm talking about. I really do. I think that's why you're here today. I think you also long to have your heaven within you and to live your life in the company of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in response to that desire, the church, moved by the Holy Spirit, always acting under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says a hundred years after Elizabeth dies, all right, Elizabeth, enough hiding. Come out and tell them what it is your mission to tell them. Tell them that God is waiting in the depths of their souls, waiting and longing for them. Show them the way into their own hearts. Usher in a new age of the Holy Spirit. A quiet and unseen but earth-shattering revolution of interior indwelling recollection and silence. Be for them. It's no accident again that you're here today. I believe that the Lord has called you here today because he's inviting you to be a part of this movement that's happening in the church, this unseen, hidden movement. This is the way to restore our church. This is the way to restore our culture, one heart at a time, growing in union and intimacy and prayer with God. That happens, it begins within you, so I just invite you in prayer today to go there into your own heart. Meet the Lord there. He's been there all along. And when you realize that you are a little closer to him and that your prayer is a little deeper, that your heart is a little bit more still, know that Elizabeth's been there too and she's praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that the rest of this day will be, a one, of, will be one of renewal. That God will draw near to you and allow you to become more fully yourself alive in Christ. And that you will go forth into the church a little bit more yourself. Because we need you, women. Oh my goodness, do we need you. Fully alive in Christ. I want to thank you so much for being here, for being a witness to the love of Jesus Christ, witnessing the reality of the Trinity dwelling within your hearts. Thank you.